So this New Testament letter called Galatians, it's all about the gospel. Basically and broadly put, it is about the idea that the way you get right with God and become a part of his people is solely because of what God has done for you in Christ, not because of what you do. And Paul, from chapter 1, has been hammering this home again and again because it is so contrary to everything that we would expect or assume about God. Most people I meet, Christian and non-Christian alike, assume that what Christianity is about is being a good person. It's about impressing God or living by a certain standard in this world by which God somehow turns a favorable glance towards you and somehow through your effort you accumulate enough points to possibly get into heaven someday. Now maybe you don't think about it that bluntly or crassly, but my experience is most people think about it on some kind of variation of that kind of way. And that is completely contrary in the absolute antithesis of everything the Bible has to say. If that is your view of Christianity, you do not understand Christianity. And if you think that you are a Christian but are approaching God that way, I would submit to you that you are not actually a Christian. You are seeking a God of your own making and trying to get, to get right with that self-made image of God in your own way. No, no, Paul has very different things to say. Paul, again and again, no, you get right with God and you become a part of his people because of what God has done for you, which means you're free. He'll say this a lot, you're free. You're free from what he says, the law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, all those commands, all those thou shalt and all those thou shalt not, all those things that we believe define what the ethical standard of life should be. He says you're free. You're free of all of it. He even goes a step further and says, if you try to go back to getting right with God on the basis of those things, he says you've made yourself a slave. That you've taken on a yoke of slavery all over again. It gets worse. He says things like, you have been alienated from Christ. He says, you have fallen from grace. And in what might be one of the greatest puns in the Bible of all time, he talks to those people who are even trying to get these Christians to believe this false kind of way and imposing circumcision on them as the tip of the law, saying, I wish they wouldn't stop at the tip and cut the whole thing right off. Get it out of your life. Stop living to please God that way. Because the gospel is about what God has done for you. The good news of what God has done for you. And that's what makes you right with him. Which, of course, has been stirring all kinds of feelings in some of us here and challenging some of our belief systems and raising all kinds of questions. Because 
I've heard them. I know you've been asking them. And people have been asking the same questions for 2,000 years. Great. If I'm free from the law, I can do whatever I want. I am free to live my own way. Drawing some kind of conclusion that therefore, if it doesn't matter what I do in terms of getting right with God, well, I found the loophole. So I'll do whatever I want. God's got to forgive me anyway. Right? God doesn't even seem to care, maybe. It doesn't even seem to matter. I can now live for me. And if you've asked yourself that question, Maybe as we've been looking at Galatians, maybe other times you've heard or thought about the gospel in your life. If you've ever asked or wondered about that, it means you're understanding the gospel correctly. Because if your understanding of the gospel does not lead you to that conclusion, it just might mean you are watering it down and selling it short. And that's why every time in the Bible, every time that God talks about this, every time that Paul or any of the other New Testament writers get into this and start laying out the gospel really clearly in this kind of way, they always jump to that next question, anticipating that that's where it might lead you. And the good news Today, for those of you who have been stewing in this, so tell me how to live. How does this mean I'm supposed to live? Finally, we come to that place in Galatians where Paul picks it up today. Now, we're going to launch into Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. And I'm going to take you through about 10 to 13 verses here. And I'll be honest, the difficulty I've been having is there is so much packed in. So much worthy of discussion and teaching and pondering and working through that it was difficult deciding how to cut a path. So forgive me if I can't get to every detail along the way. But what I want to try to do through these profound, amazing 10 to 13 verses is showing you an alternate way of what it means to live in relation to God today. So let me give this to you here. Galatians 5 opens and it says this. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Free from what? The law. You were called to be free. You are free from any kind of standard basis or way of life of having to try to get right with God or impress him by your own efforts. You're free of it. But look at how he turns it now. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Some older translations will say the sinful nature. Rather, Serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh.
flesh. I think a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, we talk about, again, let me reframe what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us. We talk about it and think about it in terms of what it saves us from. Jesus has saved me from my sin. Jesus has saved me from the fires of hell. Jesus has saved me from the punishment of God. Jesus has saved me from death. Jesus has saved me from, you know what I mean, fill in the blank. Don't you find that you almost exclusively think about what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you in terms of what he saves you from? The gospel is certainly about what God saves you from. But if that is all the gospel is to you, you have sold it short. Because the gospel is not just about what God has saved you from. It is about what God has saved you for. Have you ever asked that question? What has God saved me for? I mean, is the end purpose of all he did just to get me out of hot water? Or is there something actually greater that goes beyond the from and into the for? That's what Paul starts to pick up today. And his answer to that question can simply be put like this. God has in fact saved you from all these things, but he has saved you for the chance to live for him. He puts it this way. Live by the Spirit. He saved you to live for him by the Spirit, in the Spirit, a new way of life that God invites you into. Now you'll find, even in this passage, and deeper as we go into Galatians, that Paul is going to start talking about two things that he defines as the flesh and the spirit. Now, just so there's no misunderstanding about this, when Paul talks about the flesh in contexts like these, he's not talking about our physical selves. What he's not doing is setting up a dichotomy between our physical selves and our spiritual selves, or our body and our soul, if I can put it that way. Because for Paul, our body and our soul are all part of what we call the flesh. It's a total encompassing side of us that's body and soul combined, that's oriented in a certain way. And the message of the Bible is that orientation is often away from God. Now, I've shared this with you before, but I want to share it with you again. This comes out of the message. Galatians 5, the same passage that we're going to look at, but I like how the message puts it. It says this, there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the spirit just as the spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. 
this root of sinful self-interest that Paul's talking about here? That's what he means by the flesh. All of us have an inclination away from God. But see, what Jesus talks about is that God comes to us in this, 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 this state of life that we find ourselves in, which could be called even death, to bring us new life. And that new life, Jesus describes as being born again. We're born into a new way of life. And he says that that way of life comes by the Spirit. That what the Holy Spirit of God does is he comes down into us, even if we are decayed and dying in our sinful selves, far from God and spiritually sealed off from him, and he resuscitates. He breathes new life into us. And with that new life, comes a number of things. Maybe most importantly here to understand is this. It also brings a new disposition. So that we're not just free from sin and able to serve God, but that if we are born again, we want to. So to ever take the gospel and go, well, great, God's forgiven me freely. It doesn't depend on me. That means I can do whatever I want. It's a complete non-logical, non-sequitur. Because anyone who is born again wants to please God. Someone who is born again doesn't even want to sin or at least a newly developed aspect of them does not. Because the reality is there's a conflict, an internal one, a war that's going on. Let me share with you where Paul takes it from here. He says, so I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other. And you could do this next line a lot of ways so that you do not do what you want, so that you don't always know what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Have you ever experienced that? Does Paul need to prove that one to you? Those of you who have come into some kind of relationship with God, do you know this conflict full well? These two sides of us that seem to pull at each other, that war with each other, that are pulling against each other, the spirit of God this way, the flesh or our sinful natures that way, so that we find ourselves in this place of sinful people through whom God is bringing new life, feeling the growing pains in the middle. This is the way of the life of a Christian. And 
And this is the way of the life and the spirit as he does his work to seek to transform us into the likeness of his son because God does have a purpose for you. He has not just saved you from, but saved you for, and he has saved you for the purpose of making you into all that a human being was always intended to be, which you will find most clearly in the likeness of Jesus, God's son. Which means that now we live shadow existences. If you grew up like me back in the 70s and the 80s, bad carbon copies. Cheap substitutes of the fullness of what God intended humanity to be. But God comes into the middle of it and he sends his spirit to redeem and restore that who we were always intended to be. He does it by his spirit. And so Paul says, now that you have been set free from the law, now that you are right with God, now that you are part of God's covenant people, live by the spirit. Discover what God has saved you for. Do it by the Spirit. Walk His way. I'm struck by this line. Live by the Spirit and you will not desire, you will not gratify what? The desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. This war we have, it's often a war of desires, a war of what I want versus what God wants, a war of what I think is good versus what God says is good, a war between what brings me immediate pleasure or satisfaction versus a different way that God might be calling me to. I'm struck by this word desire. I'll teach you a little language stuff today and what this word is translating out. It's, it's, it's epithumao, if you care. And, and it's always good to get something on your lips. Let me say it again, then you say it. Epithumao? <clears throat> it's what gets translated desire. What does it mean? Well, it means desire. That's why they translate it desire. But there's something that if you're wooden with the word and you get into the etymology of the word that I could show you if you're interested on your own right, it could actually be translated in such a way as to say over. Desire. See, those who think that this war is between our physical nature and our spiritual nature, if I can put it that way, will often then get these conclusions wrong as well. They'll think that whatever the body desires is what this must be referring to, and that that in some way or some fashion is sinful or bad. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. First, the Bible says that what God made in the flesh, physical, is good. And the desires that God gives a human being are gifts of God and are good. But the problem is when they become over-desires. What do I mean? 
when the natural things that God has given you that are in fact good become such a point of focus or fixation or desire for you that you begin to over-desire them to such a degree that you make them the purpose, the quest, or the direction of your life. Food is good. But the over-desire of food that seeks it at all things we know is bad. Sex is good. It's a gift of God, but the over-desire of it that places it as the highest goal to be attained is bad. We can go through all the things that make us who we are physically, from our relationships, to our families, to success, to money, to health, to fill in the blank. I don't have to list these for you. The nature of the war within us is a nature of what we over-desire. Do we seek these things at all cost, or do we seek God? I came across this article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and I just want to share this little excerpt with you. David Paulson writes, If idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires, or over-desires, epithumeia, as he says it here, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for that same drift. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires for lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. But the Holy Spirit comes in the middle of it to bring new life, new disposition in a different way. I like how the psalm puts it. Delight yourself in Yahweh. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Has the Christian life ever felt like hard to you? Like simply a life of denial, a life of sacrifice? Or have you ever thought about it in terms as a life of going, well, I got to take everything that's good and joyful, put it over here, because God's called me to be something different, something austere. Of course, the history of the church has not helped in this regard. I grew up in a very liturgical kind of church and met God in that church and had some of the most powerful worship experiences you can imagine in connections with God there. And yet, what I have found is that for many people who also came to know God that way, an image of the Christian life can be presented in a false way. Here we have screens. There they have glass. And you ever notice how the glass doesn't really change? Those of you who have grown up in this environment, maybe you can speak to this. These beautiful, wonderful stained glass windows, the light would shine on them in a certain way. It would illuminate the place. I mean, brilliant how they came up with this in the Middle Ages and still practice today. And it often pictures scenes, things that are meant to make an impact on us, right? People, even, often heroes of the faith, disciples of Jesus, or if you come from a Catholic tradition, what would be called saints. Have you ever seen a single one of them smile? 
I dare you to find me that glass. Find me that picture of these people that we are supposed to model our lives off of as heroes of the faith, expressing in any way, any level of humanity or joy. No, they always have faces glowing with stern looks on their face, hands piously folded, looking up above the things of this world. At best, angry. At worst, constipated. (laughs) You know what I mean, don't you? And many have falsely thought that the way of God is somehow to be above the things of this world. The desires we have the joys in our life. No, no, no. If you view that flesh-spirit dichotomy in that false way, well, that's the road you've entered. But Jesus invites you into a different way because the way of the Spirit is learning to delight in God above all things. That God has captured my heart and I have fallen in love with you. The image of a bride and a groom. You are the love of my life. The spirit enlivens something within us that doesn't just free us from sin, but gives us a different disposition too. He creates in us a desire for God and makes him a delight of our heart. And when something is a delight of your heart and it is good, you give your life joyfully joyfully to wanting to follow him. This is the life of the spirit. A heart that delights in Yahweh and thereby means that when we live for him and by the spirit, we get the delights of our heart. That's what the Holy Spirit is looking to do in you. And he invites you to trust him in it. Now let's round out the chapter. Paul goes on. He says, the acts of the sinful nature or the flesh are obvious. And then he lists a bunch of things. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Some of them hit close to home, don't they? Others may feel far afield. I don't know how much witchcraft and orgies are going on in the community here today. But before we laugh too quickly, it goes on more than you think. And some of you may be here or listening today that are struggling with this kind of sin. The point of this list is that there's something in here every single one of us struggles with. I mean, can I ask you honestly, is there a single, is, 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 is there anything on this list? Can you look at this list and go, no, none of that is me. I don't have empirical evidence, but I am led to believe that every single person here, 
if being honest would admit to struggling with one of these. And we can add to it. It's not a total list. It's not a complete list. Paul is just rattling off examples. Here's a few. Add to them of your own. Because we don't need to be taught what sin is. Not really. It's obvious. It's obvious. Do people that engage in these things go, well, I never really knew that was wrong, but thank you for setting me straight on that one because, wow, now I... No, no, you know. You know in your heart. No fool needs to be told what right and wrong is because God has inscribed it on our hearts. And barring desensitizing it or rationalizing it or blinding ourselves from it, all of us know what sin is. These are the way of our former nature, the way of what Paul would call the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, just to name a few. If that's what's moving within you, do you need to be told what to do? Do you need to have explicated right and wrong? Do you need commands to motivate you in your life? Because I will submit to you that if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are the defining characteristics of who you are, you do not need laws. And Paul calls them fruit. Put another way, they are inevitabilities for anyone born again. This is not a list of new commands that somehow you have to do. No, this is a list of what God says he is going to do in you. It is inevitable. And also notice this, he doesn't call them fruits. No, it's not like, well, man, I'll take like, you know, five pounds of love, but you can hold back on the joy and maybe a little bit of peace today. No, he's going to do all of them in you. That's what the spirit of God does. The spirit of God produces life. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, this is what he brings. And it's certainly gradual. It's certainly a process. It's oftentimes coming amidst struggle, but it is nonetheless the fruit he brings. And more. Because like the sins, these fruit are not meant to be the totality of all that the Spirit of God does in you. It is just a sampling some examples. I'd like to share a few more with you today. Our student ministry, Boulder, has a list. And it's pretty cool, and I think you're going to benefit from it. Something that they practice with their students, teach our students here, especially in the thick of things when you're doing life together and getting on each other's nerves. and You know what I mean. Enthusiasm over apathy. Compassion over callousness. Kindness over sarcasm. 
Responding over reacting. Gratefulness over complaining. Encouragement over gossip. Grace over entitlement. Flexibility over stubbornness. Faith over fear. What others can you come up with? What's the Spirit of God doing in you? Throughout Galatians, Paul has been inviting us to see God in our relationship with him differently. On the basis of what he does, not what we do. But it's not just what he saved us from, but what he saves us for. And if you are in Christ, born again in his spirit, this is just a taste of the fruit he will bear in you. And so in his final statement, he says, since we live by the spirit, let's keep in step with it. Since we live by the spirit, let's keep in step with him. Because what I found about God is this. He will meet you exactly where you're at. Whatever struggle, whatever difficulty, however far you may believe you are from God, God will meet you exactly in that spot. He'll meet you without pretense. You don't have to give excuse. He knows exactly who you are. And he meets you there. But from that place, God isn't content to leave you there. He says, come follow me. So keep in step with the Spirit. Because he's going somewhere. Keep in step with the Spirit. He's taking you on a journey. Keep in step with the Spirit. And discover what God has saved you for.